Wonderful intro. You know, so I knew that they were going to be doing that. I knew that there was going to be some kind of intro song, but they weren't going to tell me what it was. And so I was genuinely fearful that they, Alexia wanted With You by Chris Brown to be played. And so I was kind of expecting that, but I had no idea. So I'll, I'll take that option, though. It was pretty good. So before we hop in tonight, I want to start by giving a quick disclaimer or a quick warning to you guys. So this right here is not the setting in which I would normally be teaching. I normally teach in that building that's across from this building to people who are about half your size and in the ages of kindergarten to fifth grade. And so that being said, whenever I get a little nervous or something like that, I revert back to that. And so if at any point I start talking like this and getting really excited, it's just because, you know, that's what I do. It keeps their attention. you got to go with that. You know, sometimes I hop up and down. I don't know what's going to come out if I, if I lose my track of thought at all. So stick with me if that happens. Act like I'm being normal. It's going to be great. And so now that I've got that disclaimer out of the way, I want you guys to picture something with me. You can either keep your eyes open, close, and whatever is going to work best for you. But I want you to picture either a beautiful maybe spring or fall day. It's maybe 70 degrees outside, maybe a little bit above. That's a little chilly, 75 degrees outside. There's no wind, really chill. Picture like, you know, 5 or 6 o'clock in the summer. That's where the sun is at, just starting to set. Beautiful setting outside. And I want you to picture that you're in this beautiful outdoor sanctuary. There's a stage ahead of you. You're seated out with all of your friends, and it is just a wonderful setting. And on this day, you get to celebrate one of your dear friends who is getting married. And so the wedding starts, you stand up, and the bride walks down the aisle. It's beautiful, stands up at the front with the groom. Everybody takes their seat, and it's about to start. And that's where I want to pause for just a second. What I want you guys to kind of think through now is, what do you expect to hear out of the minister's mouth that is doing the wedding? Because there's one thing in particular that I almost expect to hear every single wedding I go to. Probably 75 or 80% of the weddings I've been to, I hear this. And so the thing that I almost expect to hear is love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, so on and so forth. I almost just expect to hear that out of the minister's mouth. And I want to make two things clear about that. The first thing is that there is nothing wrong with that. It is a beautiful section of scripture that describes the love of God so, so well. And so if you're going to use that, that's wonderful. It is a beautiful section of scripture. And I want to make another thing very clear about that. Paul did not write this in the context of marriage. He did not write this with the idea of it being given to people. That way they could understand what the perfect marriage looks like. That is not the context in which Paul wrote this. Paul wrote this to describe what the love of God looks like and how we're supposed to strive to have this kind of love at the very core of who we are. And we're supposed to show that love back to others and we're supposed to have that kind of love for God. And so before we dive in to chapter 13, I want to kind of give a um, brief overview of what we talked about the past couple weeks and also what we're going to be going into And so, two weeks ago, we heard Drew and Alexia, who did a phenomenal job describing what all these different kinds of spiritual gifts are. They described how people have these diverse spiritual gifts and how you can use these to glorify the kingdom of God, given what your gift is. And then last week, 
Alec talked about how there are all these diverse spiritual gifts and about how you should be working together as one body and that they should be viewed as equal parts of the same body because the body works best when it's functioning together. And then if we look forward, after spring break, whenever we're back at the campus house, like Alexi mentioned just a couple times last week, whenever we're back there, Drew is going to keep talking about spiritual gifts, and he's going to be talking about prophecy and tongues. And so the question that I want to present to you guys is what does a chapter about love that can seemingly be out of place at first glance, what does this have to do with spiritual gifts that are surrounding it in its context. So that is what our goal is tonight, to uncover what the answer to that question is. So let's go ahead and dive into our text tonight and uncover what that answer is. So last week, Alec finished up with the first part of chapter 12, and we're going to hit the back half, or the last verse of chapter 12, um, and we're going to hit the back half of that tonight. It says, but desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. So this almost, it leads perfectly into chapter 13. In its original uh, context, this text wasn't separated. There weren't chapters whenever Paul wrote this. And so it leads perfectly into the next area that we're going to be talking about because he starts to describe what those greater gifts are. And so we're going to hit these first three verses in chapter 13 first, and then I'm going to look back and we're going to talk about them just a little bit. So if you would like to read with me, it says, If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And so as we start to look into these verses, we can start to see the answer to that question we can start to see that Paul is naming these great spiritual gifts. The Corinthian church would have been viewing these spiritual gifts as like the elite of the elite. They would have been like, oh, prophecy and tongues, like these are the gifts to have. And so what Paul is saying, though, he starts to go through these and he says, if you don't have love with these, then they are absolutely pointless to have. In verse 1, we see Paul say that if you have the gift of tongues and you're speaking to people through that, but you don't have love at the very core of who you are, you might as well go back on that drum set and beat the cymbal for 20 minutes because it's going to do just as much good as um, talking in tongues without love is going to do. And then in verse 2, we hear, see him talk about prophecy, and we we see him say that if you have faith that can move mountains, if you have that great of a faith, but you don't have love at the very core of who you are, then he, he just says here that he is nothing. Not that his gift isn't worth anything at that point. He straight up says, I am nothing if I don't have love. So very strong language by Paul there. And then in verse 3, he talks about how if I give away all my possessions, even if I give over my body, there's different um, ways that can be interpreted, either into slavery or maybe even into death. If I give up my body, but I do this out of selfish desire, then I have, it's, it's pointless. If I do this, don't do this out of love. And now I'm going to be honest with you guys. Whenever I look at verse 3 and apply it to my own life, that can be where it starts to get challenging. Because if you guys were at Sunnybrook on Sunday, Drew talked about this a little bit. He talked about this idea of how you are supposed to lower yourself and you're supposed to raise up Christ in your life. And so there's a little part of me that whenever I read this and whenever I think about my own life, there's a little part of me that feels uncomfortable. 
because I think about whenever, if I'm giving away my possessions, you know, if I'm putting money in the offering plate, if I am giving money to missionaries online, there's always this little part of me that goes, man, I kind of hope that person next to me just saw me put money in the offering plate. Or there's that little part of me that goes, man, I really hope that missionary reaches out to me and says, thank you for that gift, because I'd like to be acknowledged for it since, you know, I gave them my money, even though it's not my money at all. And so that is kind of convicting to read that and realize that if I'm doing it out of this desire, if there's any part of me that wants that, then it is pointless for me to be doing this because it should be love that makes me do these things. It should be love for God and love for his people. And so we're going to go ahead and move into the next section here of verse 4 through 7. But before I read this, as I was thinking through how I was going to say this, I was like, I honestly just kind of want to walk off stage after I read this because it is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, in my opinion, and I can't say anything near as eloquently as it is going to say it. And so, but praise be to God that I don't have to try to say anything as eloquently as Scripture. And so we're going to dive into this, and then we're going to talk about it just a little bit. But 4 through 7... Or you, might, you may have heard this before, by the way. Even if, even if you aren't super familiar with Scripture, you might have seen this on like picture like a live, laugh, love sign in somebody's <laughs> house. You might have seen it there. And so 4 through 7 say, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So that is an absolutely beautiful section of Scripture. And so we're going to dive into this just a little bit. What I'm going to do is there's a list here. There's a list of six things that love is or that love encapsulates. And then there's eight things that love is not. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to first talk about these first two things that it says. Love is patient, love is kind, and then we're going to hit a little bit on the rest of it. But love is patient, love is kind. That's pretty self-explanatory, but there's one thing I want to hit on. It's not describing the patience that you have at Starbucks whenever you're waiting on your drink and it's been over five minutes. It's not describing that kind of patience. It's describing a patience with your brothers and sisters. It's describing a patience with people. It's saying that no matter how many times that Alexia interrupts in staff meeting and I just can't take it anymore, I can't do it. No, it's I have patience, and she never does that, by the way. I'm not throwing her under the bus. She never interrupts in staff meeting. She's wonderful. But, um, and so it's describing a patience with people. And so moving on here, I'm going to go ahead and read through this list one more time. And then I'm actually going to give you guys like 30 seconds to talk about with your people that you're sitting with. I want you to talk about what kind of, what do you think these things have in common? If you had to pick like one of these things that I'm about to list, which one would kind of cover them all? And so uh, read with me here halfway through verse four, it says, Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. So if you guys want to talk for like 30 seconds, and then we'll come back, what kind of, what do you think those things that I just listed have in common with each other? So 30 seconds, go.
slide. If you want to go ahead and start bringing it back in here. All right. So the thing that sticks out to me in here, at least, you guys may have a different answer. I'm sure that you can come up with so many different reasons for so many different answers in this. The thing that sticks out to me is love is not self-seeking. Because if you look through all these things that are listed, you can kind of find a center that is focused on you. You can kind of find a center. Like, let's go through this list here. Love does not envy. Oh, my gosh, I really wish what that person had because I deserve it. Focused on you. Love is not boastful. Man, I have all this stuff. You don't. Focus on you. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. I'm actually going to pause a little bit on this one because this one is something that can be very common in our culture um, and can be very hard to forgive. And so love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is this thing that no matter how many times that person in your group project that does not show up and does not participate, you guys all know what I'm talking about. We've all had this. There's always that one person that just does not do anything, and it can be infuriating. But what Paul is saying, you know, he's probably not directly applying it to the context of group projects in college, but what Paul is saying is that you are not supposed to keep a record of how many times that person did not do what they were supposed to do. You're supposed to forgive them. You're supposed to love them regardless of how many times that person has wronged you. You're supposed to love them because you wronged me repeatedly. That is what God is saying. We do not deserve the love of God. He's saying you do not deserve everything you have been given. And so you need to love people the way that I have shown you love. And so that is what Paul is getting at whenever he's saying love does not keep a record of wrongs. And so, on this last verse here, in chapter, or last verse of this section, it says, it hears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What this does is it kind of serves as a catch-all there, because there's a lot there in those four things. But it's saying that love is this thing that no matter what happens, no matter what circumstance comes, no matter um, what age group it is, no matter all these things, it, love is going to endure forever. And that actually leads right into our next section. Chapter, in verse 8, it says, love never ends. And so what Paul is saying is that all these things that love is, all these things that love is going to be forever and ever, it's never going to end. And so with that, let's go ahead and read this next section here. We're going to do 8 through 12, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. And so in verse 8 there, we see Paul talking about going back to his argument before of, why is love so important? Why is love talked about in the middle of all these spiritual gifts? He's saying here that if you have the gift of prophecy, it's going to come to an end whenever you die. If you have the gift of tongues, it's going to come to an end whenever you die. But the thing that's not going to come to an end is love. That is going to remain forever into eternity, forever into the next age. And so that is what Paul is getting at in verse 8 here. And then in verse 9 through 12, we see him describing this thing that he's describing. You have all this stuff right now, and it's purely just a glimpse 
of what's going to be in the next age whenever Christ returns. And something really interesting here, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it might have been Paul. We see in chapter 10, verse 1, we see uh, the author of Hebrews do this a very similar imagery where he talks about how the old covenant was merely a shadow of the new covenant. And so we see this comparison of this old thing is not nearly as good as the new thing. We see this comparison of this old covenant where you had to kill animals and you had to do all this stuff in order to be forgiven from your sins. Christ came and wiped that clean for you on the cross. And now what Paul is saying is that Christ came on this earth and he died for you on the cross and you were forgiven from your sins, but everything on this earth is purely just a glimpse of what you get to see in the next age whenever Christ returns. And so in this last verse here, he says, or verse 13, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now this is interesting because last time I checked, last time I read through the New Testament, I kind of got the idea that we're saved by faith and not by love. And so I read this and I go, hold on a second. You know, we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. And so we're saved by faith in this gift that God has given us. But what Paul is saying here, he's saying, love is greater than that faith that saves you into eternity with God. And so that's a really interesting thing that Paul is saying. And we're going to go ahead and go into a little break here, and we're going to hit on the second half. But what Randy is going to answer for us is why is love the greatest of these three things that is mentioned? So you can go and take a break, and then we'll come back in just a few minutes. All right. I'm going to need a little audience participation here at the beginning. Yes. Josh is ready. He's ready. Um, so, and I want more than just a hand raise. Okay? So these are the instructions. I need you to like really embrace this. I'm going to ask you a question. And if it is true of you, like, I need you to really go for it. Okay? Yes. Alex, ready. All right. Here is the question. Who in here loves to bake? Yeah. Ah! There it is. Okay, baking. Here's the thing, guys. I love that you love baking. I do not. I do not. I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you still love me, even though I don't love baking. Um, but if I had to choose, cook an entire meal or make cookies, I'm baking the cookies. That's happening. So I, th- maybe that helps. Um, but here's something you need to know about me. You're going to learn some things about me tonight. Hopefully it goes okay. Because um, this one's a little embarrassing now that I'm a grown woman with a husband and three children. I struggled in high school to pass a class called home economics. I know. I don't even know if this class still exists. Um, ninth grade year. If, you've not, if you don't know what this class is, you've got this assorted lesson plan of cooking, baking, sewing, uh, child rearing, uh, laundry was in there. So all these basics that they think maybe future life will be really helpful to know. In my great wisdom, I thought that was useless. 
I did not think that was real helpful, and I wasn't very good at it, it turns out. Like, none of those categories was I very good at. And I do, I don't know if my mom will listen to this at any point, but I do want to make clear it was not her fault that I did not know these things and that I struggled to pass this class. That was not, not because she did not try to help me. She did. I just saw no point in it. So it didn't go well. But baking was actually one of the, of all the things, baking was the hardest for me, which makes no sense. It should, in my mind now, be the easiest. Because here's the thing, if you've not done a lot of baking, you just follow the recipe. That's what you do. There's, it's already laid out for you. You just follow the instructions, step one, step two, step three. I am a rule follower. This should have been easy. It didn't go well. It did not go well for me at all. See, I didn't have Amy Moss's skills. It didn't, it didn't go well. Because here's what Amy seems to have figured out long before I did, is that to make really delicious cookies, like you, you have to kind of follow something. There's a design of something. See, Amy can't jump to step six of her recipe card, which is basically just putting them in the oven and expect cookies to come out. No, she actually has to go through all of those things. There's an order to how this goes. Ingredients go in, you mix them all together, make sure they get clumped well. There's a temperature, there's a time. All of these things have to be done in order or cookies don't come out well. And I think that's true for us as we talk about love. There's an order to this. Because what we love the very most impacts us. There's an order, and there's a design, and there's actually someone we follow and model after as we go. And this is really good news. Because in a room this big, with all of your lovely faces, when I say the word love, that can bring up a lot of different thoughts and a lot of different expressions. It can mean different things as we go around the room. And here's what I know. As much as I love to sit with you and hear from you and get your thoughts on many things, if you and I together, even collectively, come together to try and define this term of love and define what it should look like, and it has nothing to do with this, the word of God, it's going to be useless to us going to be a banging gong because the order of how we love has already been set and it's not for you and I to pick and to define but to follow we need a better way if you want to turn I don't know who has brought their Bibles but we're going to go to Matthew 22 first we're going to be in Matthew 22 Verse 36, and I'll set it up for you a little bit. So the Pharisees, if you're not familiar with that term, religious leaders of their day, not a big fan of Jesus. 
really hoping to trip him up. And so they send, they send someone and hoping he can ask a tough enough question that this will be the moment that Jesus stumbles. And here's his question. Again, Matthew 22, verse 36. I think it's on the screen. Yep. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He, meaning Jesus, said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus gives us our order. We're to love God first. Others second. And ourselves, we are last. And this is how life works best. And to try and circumvent it, to try and order it differently, to start with us at the top. It's not going to work. It's going to leave us chasing after cheap and useless idols we call love. But they're of our own making. They won't hold up. Augustine has a way of describing this thought. He says, the essence of sin, sin is anything that we do say, think, that is outside of God's good and perfect design. The essence of sin is a disordered love where we take and we mix up. Instead of God first, we put ourselves first or we put others first. No, there's an order already. God first, others second, myself last. And I'm going to ask kind of a silly question. And what I mean by silly is it sounds basic. But I don't, I don't want us to skip past it just because it's basic, because it actually is very foundational to what we believe as Christians. See, my question is, in Matthew 22, not only are we to love our God first and foremost, but he asks us to do it with all of our heart and all of our soul and with all of our mind. Why is that so important? Not only do we need the order, but the why we do this is going to really matter. But I'm not going to answer it just yet for you. I want to kind of linger a little bit in the back of our minds, and we're going to keep kind of working away and see if we can build it together. Zach left us with a question at the end. Why does Paul seem to think that love is the greatest of the three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love? The love finds its root in God himself. See, love and God cannot be separated. God is love. He designed it. 
because it is him. It is selfless and it is active and it is sacrificing. And it's not based on any need. God does not need. He does not want. Not like you and I do. It's not subjective to feelings that change every other minute. No, that's not what he's describing. That's not what love is. So you can't earn this type of love from the Lord. He chooses to lavish it, to give it away. And he does it through his son on the cross. And the more we meditate on that, and the more we internalize that, that richness, that costliness, you know what we'll find? We'll find we have no room for pride. We have no room for self-seeking. If that is what my heart longs for most, what do I have that I would not give for him? What would I do? What would I not do for another brother or another sister? There is no more room for it. And the second command gets to fill naturally because I have ordered my love on God first. And the church has a really fancy term for this. You may have to write it down. We call this the vertical and horizontal relationship. Vertical and horizontal relationship. See, my relationship with God is going to impact everything I do with my brothers and sisters. Everything. They cannot be separated. In John 13, if you want to turn there with me, find it together. Jesus tells us, and this is after he has washed his disciples' feet. We'll just put that in the back of your mind, that this model we are chasing washes his disciples' feet. John 13, 34, reads this way. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And again, it's not my definition, it's the Lord's. See, I don't get to hate Alec or Drew or Scott and claim I love the Lord or probably have a job here. That doesn't go together probably. Um, I don't get to do that. I don't get to claim Christ and then treat my brothers and sisters however I want. They go together. We follow our Lord. But here's, here's the real rub to this. See, to love like that is really, really hard. And it's messy. And it gets complicated. And I really believe that apart from the Holy Spirit transforming us and empowering us and moving us forward through it, it's not even possible. My selfishness won't let me. I need the Lord to do that. Because it requires that we die to ourselves. To love like that requires us to die to us. And that's where I think we find a lot in common with the Corinthian church here in chapter 13. Really, the whole book. We've hit on it many times. So on the screen, I think it's Eli up there. Is it still Eli? Yes, thank you, Eli. And Carter, 
appreciate that they do that for us. One side of our screen, we're going to have 1 Corinthians 13, just our middle section. And then I want to go back to some parts of Scripture that we have already read and see if anything jumps out to you. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, For since there is envy and strife among you, you are not worldly and behaving like mere humans. What is happening? You are not loving each other well. Envy and strife, that is what marks you. Again, in 1 Corinthians 3, he tells them, so let no one boast in human leaders because that's what they're doing. They're picking their favorites. There's a hierarchy. Which leader is best? Which one will I follow? 1 Corinthians 5, you are arrogant as they embrace the sin of a man sleeping with his father's wife. 1 Corinthians 6, they show no ability to suffer well, show any patience with their brothers and sisters as they keep taking them to court over and over again. 1 Corinthians 8, they are insisting on their own way when it comes to eating meat, never considering the weaker brother that might have troubles with this. 1 Corinthians 11, wanting their own way again. Some enjoying the Lord's Supper and feasting while others are going hungry. 1 Corinthians 12, what connects us to our chapter in 13, we see jealousy and envy, probably strife, as they barter and are whining about who has which spiritual gift because they want them and they want them all in abundance, but not because they want to love God first and not because they want to love others well, but so they look really good and they get to be really significant. They have a disordered love. It doesn't line up, doesn't go together. Instead of turning out like we are supposed to be turning out to the Lord and to others, they have looked in again and again self-seeking. It doesn't line up. It's a disordered love. But I've wondered, as Paul has done this with the 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 13, he's laid this grid of love that God has designed over the lives of this church to see where it's disordered and where it lines up. And I wondered what would happen if, if we did the same what if we laid that grid over us? Something else you should know about me. I like to ask a lot of questions. If you've had any meetings with me or listened to any teaching more than this, I'm very inquisitive. Jonas is nodding. Yes. I don't know if that's a spiritual gift. I don't know if it's tied to something else, but the Lord has given it to me either way. And so I like to ask lots of questions. So I don't know how this is go, going to go, but this is something I did in my study time as I prepared, and I want to share it with you. I've got some questions. And I just want us to reflect on that. I don't, I don't need you to write it down unless there's something that really sticks out to you. I just want you to listen in and see if anything draws out from the Spirit. Are you content and joyful 
faithfully using your spiritual gifts no matter what. Behind the scenes, washing dishes in the dungeon. So I don't know if you've been back there. It's kind of a dungeon in that back kitchen. Setting up chairs, cleaning pews, taking trash. While others get to be more upfront, get to be seen. Can you be content and joyful with what the Lord has given you? Is convenience and ease what determines how or when or even if you want to use your spiritual gifts? Are you fostering any bitterness or maybe self-righteousness as you use your gifts but feel underappreciated, not noticed? and grow a little bit angry that you might be the only one that gets it in the whole church. Are you able to rejoice when a brother or sister comes to you and repents from whatever happened last weekend and then walk with them patiently and kindly, truthfully, Can you bear with them as they work really hard to fix their eyes on Jesus? Or do you just grow irritated with them and want to walk away? Are you so wrapped up in doing your things your way that you can't see that there's a better way? So I ask a question, why? Why are we called as believers to love the Lord our God, not only first and foremost, but with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my mind? Why? Why is that so important? Why is that the greatest command? I want to give us two reasons. The first is this. He is worthy of it because he is. He just is. He is the great I am and the alpha and the omega. There is God and there is everything else. Nothing between it. He just is. He is worthy of worship because he is God and God alone. And there are many verses we could go to for this. I've picked a few. Revelation 4.11 Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Psalm 99.5 Exalt the Lord our God. Bow and worship at his footstool for he is holy. He's completely other. Deuteronomy 1017, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awe-inspiring God. He is worthy because he just is. There is nothing else like him, nor will there ever be. He 
is worthy of all of our hearts and all of our minds and our full souls. Reason number two. He is worthy of it because he has purchased us with his very own blood. Romans 5, 6 through 8 reads this way. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God, God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And on and on we could go. Ephesians 2 and Philippians 2 and Colossians 3 and Revelation 5. It would be endless. This whole book speaks of it because this book is about him and how we worship him, because he is worthy of it. But I want to leave us with one more, one more verse I want to echo in our minds. 1 John 4.10. It's considered the other love chapter in the Bible. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, God alone is worthy because he just is and because he did what we could never do. And when we order love rightly, God first, others second, us last. We worship him well. We honor him well. For he alone has rescued us and redeemed us and is in the process of restoring us if we have placed our faith in Christ, him alone. And that is the most incredible news we will ever hear. And I pray that it lingers for the rest of your life, that you can't let go of it, that it's everything you think about, again and again. He is worthy of it. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is nothing like you, Father. God, you alone are worthy of all we have. And yet I know we struggle. Father, would you forgive us? God, would you draw us to you? God, would you help us to worship you rightly, to fix our eyes upon you, to gaze on your beauty? Father, and let that transform us. God, for the rest of our days, would we see you and worship you? Father, thank you for your great love for us that we did not deserve, and yet you gave anyway. Father, it is only through your Son 
that we can ask these things and pray these things. And so we praise your name for what he did on the cross on our behalf. Amen.